heard of Marco Polo. Uh, Marco Polo, uh, his stories were sensational in his day. Uh, both his job and his curiosity had taken this uh, 13th century merchant uh, east. And when he came back with tales of things that the Italians, the Venetians, had never ever seen, things of far eastern cultures, of treasures, and of kings, hardly anyone believed him. Polo knew that people might not believe in a faraway kingdom, really, until they got to see it for themselves somehow. So he did something about it. He invited some of the leaders in the city of Venice to dinner one night. And when they arrived, they found him dressed in the clothes of a, a Chinese peasant. And they were very surprised to see this because he was normally dressed very well. He was a very wealthy merchant. And then he, at dinner time, told stories of incredible gems, the kind of gems and jewels that you would never see in any part of Europe whatsoever. And the leaders who were there that night are said to have reported just how sensational were these stories. But at the same time, they jeered at him when he said that they were true. And as they laughed out loud and banged their hands on the table in banter at his claims, Marco Polo reached into his pocket, pulled out hundreds of jewels and threw them up into the air. And as ruby red rain and the brightest turquoise stones that they had ever seen fell onto the table in front of them and tinked on the silverware and the goblets, their mouths dropped and they turned to look at him in utter amazement. And at last, they were blown away, not just by what they heard, but by what they saw. Now, the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, I reckon, has a similar experience. She had heard about the glories of a faraway kingdom, about something actually that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, had been doing through, well, through what can only be described as an exceptional king, King Solomon. And, and it wasn't necessarily the stories of his wisdom that had it sorry, it was the stories of his wisdom that wowed the world, and this despite the incredible wealth. As we'll see later in our passage tonight, everybody who came to Solomon to get a glimpse of what was going on in Israel at that time, they were just showering him in gold and jewels and spices and just laying gifts before him. But it was his wisdom that wowed the world. And yet, as we saw in our text, the Queen of Sheba didn't quite believe it for herself. She was skeptical. She had to see it for herself. And what I want to do tonight is just walk through this passage and do so using uh, two points. The first is be astonished by the king's wisdom, and secondly, be amazed by the king's blessing. First of all, verses 1 to 9, be astonished by the king's wisdom. Um, just to give you a bit of backdrop, just in case you've not been here for any of the series so far, when Solomon became king, God appeared to him and said, ask for anything. It was a blank check. Solomon, in recognizing who he was, 
the great weight of responsibility that was on him to govern this kingdom before God asked for wisdom. And God was really pleased with that, and God gave him wisdom. And in chapter 3, verse 12 of 1 Kings, we actually read this, where God said to Solomon, I'll give you wisdom so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So that's how exceptional this man's wisdom would be. And that's the news, as verse 1 tells us, that the Queen of Sheba had heard. Verse 1 tells us that the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. Now that tells us Solomon's reputation had gone global. It was that exceptional. He was an A-lister in a sense, and notice, famous for his relationship with the Lord. So not only are people talking about the discernment and the wisdom and the decision-making excellence of this particular king, they're talking about how he got this wisdom. Now, maybe they're talking about the glory cloud filling the temple on its completion. Maybe they know about the stories of the fact that God appeared to him and said, I'll give you anything, ask for anything. And he said, give me wisdom. Maybe they're talking about those kinds of appearances. But in any case, they're making the connection between Solomon's wisdom and Solomon's God. So in other words, everyone's talking about it. The Queen of Sheba heard about it, and she lived about 1,500 miles away in what is modern-day Yemen. But everybody's talking about it. But as we see in this passage, not everybody's believing it. Not everybody's buying it. The Queen of Sheba thought it was too good to be true. Uh, When the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, verse 6 tells us she did not believe these things. She was a skeptic. But in a sense, she was a good skeptic. Uh, You do get bad ones. Uh, Bad skeptics are those who ask hard questions but aren't really open to the prospect of being convinced by the answers that they receive. But the Queen of Sheba is different. Verse 1b tells us that she decided to actually go to Solomon to test him with hard questions. Um, Now, I I, I don't know what kind of stuff she was talking about. It doesn't actually report, you know, maybe who knows whether it was the kind of riddles that Gollum threw Bilbo in The Hobbit or whether it was maybe, maybe her hard questions included political and ethical questions that related to her rule and her reign. She was a queen after all. Uh, maybe her, her questions were a bit more existential. You know, why is there something and why is there not nothing? Is there a God? And if so, what's the meaning of existence? How do we know who God is? She probably came from some kind of polytheistic background. But something is making her sit up and take note of Solomon's God. I wonder what questions you would have asked. What questions would you like to ask the wisest man in the world? We might have the same kinds of questions, the questions related to our own existence, philosophical questions, maybe even just wisdom in the basic, on-the-ground level of relationships. How do we interact with people? What's the best way to go forward in life? How do we set goals? What should our priorities be? What would you have asked? Well, she came to ask Solomon. And she traveled to test him with hard questions and like Marco Polo's guests that night, with a ruby red rain falling down on the table in front of them. 
she was utterly astonished. She was blown away. Verse 3 tells us, Solomon answered all her questions. These are the hard questions. And this, just to make sure we understand this, they say, state it positively and negatively. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food, the officials, the servants, and the burnt offerings made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She was so astonished by Solomon's wisdom, both by hearing it from his mouth and seeing it applied in his kingdom, she was left breathless. That's what the Hebrew word means. She was totally lost for words. And look at what she says in verse 6 and 7. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements. So she's talking about the temple and the kingdom he's governing. And your wisdom. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. Now, what a great discovery to make. What a great discovery to consider someone that you think is actually that story about that person is just too good to be true. That's just too impressive. You ever met someone like that? You kind of thought, actually, okay, everybody's bigging up this person as some kind of genius, some kind of brilliant person. And yet you're just like, nah, no one's that good. I had my own wee experience of this, I suppose. Um, in 2012, I had the joy of picking up Don Carson from the airport. And I was taking him up on an hour-long journey up to St. Andrews because he was speaking at the Scottish Baptist Minister's Fellowship. And I was a part of the team who was organizing the speakers and so on. And so I was just a little bit like, Don Carson is coming to town. Okay, Don Carson is a theologian. For anyone who doesn't know, ask me. I'll give you a book by him, and you'll love it. And he's great. He's crystal clear. And whatever he writes and wherever he preaches, uh, in the hard questions that he answers, I, I just find the man to be really impressive. And few have helped to shape me in terms of my understanding of the Bible, my approach to it, etc., than he has. So when he walked through the arrivals gate, I had to, my heart leapt a little bit. It was a bit weird, right? I was, kind of felt like I was on a first date with Catherine all over again. I was like, Don Carson! Anyway, right, inside, I was very like, hi, Don, how's it going? Uh, so it was a bit more mature in that respect. So I thought, here's an impressive man, right? So anyway, we got in the car, and there were a couple of things that made me realize by the end of that short time away together that, <laughs> sounds a bit odd, uh, at the end of that trip to the conference, that he was even more impressive than I first realized. First of all, he had to endure a car journey where not only was I driving and Don was in the passenger seat, but I had Mark Schenk of Duncan Street Baptist Church behind me and Mez McConnell of Nidra Community Church. It was just a biz the bizarre conversation that we had with what is effectively the greatest New Testament theologian in the world in the seat. I mean, it descended into such ridic ridiculousness that Mez actually said to him at one point, Hey, Don, when the book writing dries up, I reckon you've got a bit of a lucrative market in making bobblehead dolls of Don Carson. Now, I thought that was a little bit inappropriate, but Don just laughed his head off. And I was so impressed by that. He was bantering. The second thing that, that helped me to see how impressive he was was on the second night of the conference, 
and he's due to speak. And I'm leading the session and so on. And, I, and he's not turned up by the start of it. So I thought, okay, that's fine. I'll just get cracking. He'll turn up. He's a, he's a celeb. Like he'll just gust, ghost in and then he'll do his thing and then go out. But no, like I led the whole session. We got through the, like the longest prayers we had ever prayed. And he still hadn't turned up 40 minutes later. And we were just about, we were like, oh no. Imagine Don Carson comes to our conference and dies. Or, you know, <laughs> we were thinking these terrible things. But we ended up, we went, just as about to go out the door to see him. And he walks. And he walks right up to the front, right up to the microphone. And he comes up and he says, I'm not sorry that I'm late. I'm not sorry that I'm late, and let me tell you why. I've just been on the phone, on the phone to my son, who is in the military, and he is lost. He has never put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and tonight he called me in desperation, seeking for me to explain to him the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ again and to explain why he felt such that he could not escape this. He could not escape these thoughts about a redeemer and a savior and the guilt and the shame that he experienced. So, he said, I am not sorry for being late. Now that's impressive. And I guarantee that if you ask anyone who was at that 2012 conference, that's the thing they'll go away remembering. That actually taking that time to talk to your lost son about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is more important than speaking to 120 Christian pastors in the room. He was impressive. So who's the most impressive person that you've met? The Queen of Sheba was blown away when she met Solomon. Not even half of what was told me was true about you, Solomon, she said. And that's an exceptional discovery to make. But still, whether you're thinking about Solomon or Don Carson or whoever you had in mind as the most impressive person you'd ever known, none compare and no discovery compares to the discovery of Jesus Christ as the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who loves us deeply and who changes us so incredibly when we put our faith and trust in him. It reminded me actually of the story of Lee Strobel, who was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune and a self-confessed skeptic. And to Lee Strobel, as he wrote, the pro he, Christianity was the product of wishful thinking, ancient mythology, or primitive superstition. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. You might think, that fairly well describes what I think. Well, one day his wife became a Christian, to his surprise, and he was so astonished at the change that was brought about in her by believing the gospel that he became not a bad skeptic, but a good skeptic, like the Queen of Sheba. He decided to satisfy his curiosity and go and find out if what was said was true. So he set aside his previous prejudices to look into it. He read books. He interviewed some of the foremost theologians 
uh, archaeologists, historians that he could find. And he read the Bible a verse at a time. And by the time he was finished, he said, I had to admit the unthinkable. It was true. He had found Jesus Christ to be the greatest man who had ever lived, with the greatest wisdom that there has ever been. And I want to say to anyone who's here tonight who's not a Christian that you can do the very same thing, because anyone who's willing to take a serious look at Jesus will discover about him what the Queen of Sheba discovered about Solomon. He's everything advertised and more. So when you hear people like us who love him, talking about just how exceptional his love is, you ought to satisfy the curiosity that's in your heart. Is it really that good? Whenever you hear people like us talking about the things that he taught, like the seriousness of sin and the reality of an eternity in hell after this life, you really ought to take on board what is said, satisfy the curiosity. If that's true, then this is too big to ignore. Fine if you decide to investigate it and decide to leave it after that, but at least investigate it. Dignify the curiosity is my encouragement. And brothers and sisters, we must be those, of course, who are ready and willing to talk about these things. For we shouldn't expect that those who have these types of curiosities will actually make it into a church service. Praise God that they do. But most of the time, we'll be having these conversations with our neighbors and our friends, our work colleagues, fellow pupils at school. We need to be able to talk to them about this, about our God, and communicate that Jesus is everything advertised and more. And that though Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, he's a fool in a sense compared to the God-man Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's the king of kings. His reputation also has gone global. The reports about him are way more remarkable than what Solomon did. He came declaring himself to be God in the flesh, saying he would die for sin, that he would rise to give people who believed in him eternal life. He did that having already throughout his lifetime astounded people with his wisdom. His knowledge was unrivaled. He answered all the questions of the fiercest skeptics, leaving them both silent before him and ready to resort to unfriendly and even evil tactics to trap him. And the happiness of his people, like us, it's a strong indication of the joy that we really find in him. Maybe you think it's too good to be true. Some people do. The Queen of Sheba at least traveled thousands of miles to investigate this report about Solomon for ourselves. What are we willing to do? What might you be willing to do to see for yourself if it's really true? Don't do nothing. I mean, especially if you're hearing this, maybe for the second time, maybe for the millionth time. You've heard this again and again when you've come. But Jesus once said that when, it, when everyone who has ever lived rises at the judgment at the end of the world, the Queen of Sheba will condemn those who have had the chance to come to Jesus to see his glory for themselves and decided not to. In Matthew chapter 12, religious leaders were asking Jesus, show us a sign that we might believe in you. But they're bad skeptics. They're not open-minded. They've already made up their minds. And Jesus sees right through them. And he replied to them, the queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. See what he's saying? 
Those who know more than she knew and fail to believe will be indicted by her appearance at the judgment. She'll be pointing the finger at you saying, your hard skepticism has condemned you. So follow her example. Don't entertain dubiety and cynicism. Take a look at Jesus for yourself. Maybe you don't know how to do that. I always presume that people know how to do that. But ask the person who brought you. Ask one of us. We'd love to read the Bible with you or help you to do that. Give you a book that would help you to do that. And maybe you'll find yourself responding the way the Queen of Sheba did. Let's look at that in the second point. You'll be amazed by the king's blessing in verses 10 to 13. What does she do? Well, she gave God praise and blessed his king. Okay, in verse 9, praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because, the Lord's, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So what did she do? Coming face to face with who Solomon was, she didn't praise him. She praised his God. She gave credit where credit was due. She saw how God appointed Solomon and gave him wisdom to rule in righteousness. She recognized it wasn't his doing. He didn't campaign for this position. It's not the result of political maneuvering or a cracking manifesto that he's ended up in this position. God has been gracious. God has sovereignly put him in this position according to his good promise and indeed God's love for his people is ultimately what is behind this king and his wisdom. And again, if that is true of Solomon, how much more can that be said of Jesus? God's love for his church is what's behind the sending of the one who is greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that it's in love that he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. And that justice and righteousness are the very things that he pursued. Justice, this punishment for wrongdoing. God's holiness demanded it after all. We deserved this punishment, but when he sent Jesus into the world, Christ took this punishment for us. And the righteousness, well, that's what he maintained in himself. Even when he took our sin upon himself, the Bible says that Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And that's what he gave us. That's what God gave us, this righteousness. He gave us this because Christ died. God gave us in his goodness and in his wisdom the very thing that he demanded of us. And that's righteousness. And I think that's why we should indeed follow the Queen of Sheba's example that even as we look at Solomon and as we look at the one greater than Solomon, we should be astonished by his wisdom especially Jesus' wisdom, and be amazed by this king's blessing, the blessing of knowing him. And that's what we ought to do, to praise the Lord our God and do it continually. As Ephesians 1 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So she not only praised the king, indeed she blessed him, Look at what she did, verse 10 to 12. Basically says that she gave him lots of gifts of gold, of spice, spices, precious stones. 
And actually, only the spices get a double mention here. And that's really because that was the, if you like, the delicacy of her region. That's what that, that region was most famous for. That's what held most value. But look at what she discovered. Look at what she discovered in verse 13. In her praise to God for coming to grips with the wisdom of his king, as she poured out blessing after blessing on him of gifts, what did she find? Verse 13, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired and asked for besides what he had already given her out of his royal bounty. The king happily outdid her in giving. Whatever she gave, he gave more. And don't we find the same to be true of our Lord Jesus Christ? When we worship him, we do it with the best of our existence. More important than any career, more important than TV or friends, more important than anything in this world is belonging to his church and living for his praise. It's giving ourselves as living sacrifices for his glory. For it's in living out our Christian lives within the church that it's in that that he shapes us into Christ's likeness and through us as a church introduces more and more people to Christ the King. That's why we give the best of our existence to this and we give our talents, we give our money in our worship and and desiring that more would come to know what we have come to know through the giving of these gifts. And all we find is that he outdoes us again and again and again with his blessing. Don't you find this? How much has God poured out his love upon you and showered you with gifts that you did not even deserve? What blessings we find in him. Jesus happily outdoes us in our giving. He's already given us enough from his royal bounty by granting us forgiveness of sin and newness of life, but he gives more grace every day. Think about this past week. How much grace has he poured out on you to cover your sin? It's costly, that grace. How much blessing has he poured out on you Count those blessings, as the old song goes. Name them one by one. Think about what they are. And just reflect on his generosity and the blessing of our King. How precious to know the truths that the Bible teaches us, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The stories of King Solomon are sensational, really. But they're not made up. He was exceptional and impressive in his time, but he is just a foreshadowing. In fact, he's a sign. He points forward to Jesus, and the stories concerning who he is are not, are not sensational either. They are true. And we are to be those who show other people that it's true. And I pray that that would be a main point of application from tonight. 
this passage is set up in no uncertain terms to help us be astonished by this king and to marvel at all the blessings and all the evidences of his wisdom and his wealth and the blessing of his reign so that we might look forward to see Jesus and be even more astonished, wowed by how impressive he is in his love and his kindness and his grace. That's why we worship him. And I invite you to do that with me shortly after we pray. Let's bow our heads.